Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, and happy day after Thanksgiving. And in what is an annual tradition for the Hugh Hewitt Show that began in 2014. If you're hearing it for the first time in 2014, understand it's an annual tradition. I'm talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, about Abraham Lincoln. And I'm doing so because yesterday on Thanksgiving, as is an annual tradition, we talked about the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights in the early republic. And we decided that it would be the perfect day after Thanksgiving to focus on Lincoln. And Dr. Arn, welcome. It's good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Hugh. You were at work on a book about Lincoln, I believe. No. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still copying a book about uh, Winston Churchill. And I might write a book about Lincoln sometime, but that's only because I love it so much. I thought that Lincoln somehow factored into your Churchill book. Uh, it comes up, yeah, of course, because... Uh, they're like, uh, he, Lincoln and Washington and Churchill are like looking at the Himalayan range. <laughs> <laughs> they all stick up there very high. All right, now, I, I, before I go into Lincoln, uh, when we originally taped this, it's Thanksgiving 2014, the day after Thanksgiving 2014, and it's been a hard week for the country for a number of reasons. The president's done extraordinary things, and we had this uh, trial or non-trial, non-indictment in Ferguson, Missouri, and we had racial violence. And we had the usual suspects saying the usual things. And it's all very sad, actually, that it would happen this week. What was your reaction to that? Well, one of the things we're going to read is a, is a Lincoln speech when he was a young man about lawlessness. And, of course, one regrets that very much. And, and that officer was not indicted for shooting that young man. And uh, it's just a shame that that young man was shot. And a shame what we know about that young man's life, that he lived such a life, and he didn't live it for very long. And so it's, it's all a terrible shame. And, uh, you know, I, I read a piece of practical advice in the newspaper last couple of days, and that is maybe they should announce things like that at 7 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I, I think that it was pretty hard to have done it worse. To have managed. People will not remember in a few years how badly managed it was, but... You're right. A terrible shame. And I am uh, and we will come to some of the themes, but mostly that theme of race, uh, deeply embedded problem in the United States. When we talked about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, we glided over because we knew we would be coming to Lincoln. The problem of race at the founding of the country. That's right. And, you know, the problem of right race and the problem of tribe. Those are deep problems everywhere. They take on a special aspect here because we adopt principles that, according to Abraham Lincoln and according to the founders, mean that we have to rise above that and we have to treat people of different races the same. And so that challenge, which is uh, a challenge to America that's special to it and always hard to attain, uh, that challenge is, is woven into the fabric of our history and much tragedy and much achievement have come from it. You know, it's an interesting thing to me that last week I was talking with the International Justice Ministry about slavery in Ghana, in, on the Lake Volta, where children are sold into slavery at the age of two. Slavery continues to be, long before Lincoln was president, long after he was president, slavery continues to be an issue. And William Wilberforce had done his life's work even before Lincoln entered the national stage. That's right. And uh, that's right. And the British, you know, had a long history with the slave trade. Uh, the founders, many of them, uh, in fact, most of them who spoke of it, were bitter with the British about the introduction of slavery 
into the country, as, as was Lincoln. And uh, one of his arguments, one of his prime arguments, we'll go into it, is that we can't commit the evil that the British have committed to us into the new federal territories, into the new land to the West that the country is settling. We can't do to those people and to ourselves what has been done to us. And the British, you know, had naval dominance, and they made a lot of money, or British subjects made a lot of money from the slave trade, and Wilberforce, you know, over a very long time, decades, fought against that and appealed to the con- to conscience of the House of Representatives. I have a really bright young man who's writing uh, a paper for me right now in a class on Churchill and Wilberforce. And uh, every time oh, I talk to him, he tells me more stuff about the comparisons and similarities between the two. But, of course, there's also a similarity to Lincoln and a preparation for him in Wilberforce. And in, and before Wilberforce, there were abolitionists. Way back to John Woolman in the 1600s in the United States, there were always abolitionists. There were always Americans who understood slavery to be evil. That's right. And, and Lincoln, in one of the speeches we're going to look at, gives a history of all of that, because the story of the Union up through 1820, even beyond it, was the story of the constriction of slavery. And uh, Lincoln makes the point, a telling point in reaction to the Dred Scott decision, that there were five states where uh, black people voted, like, just like white people, full citizens, for the ratification of the Constitution. And, uh, you know, Roger Taney in the Dred Scott decision, we're going to learn, basically says that uh, the doctrine of that day was that uh, the white man has no right, the black man has no rights, the white man is bound to respect and Lincoln counters, just look at what they did. And, and uh, Tawney says that we live in a more enlightened age, the age just before the Civil War, and Lincoln says, no, much less enlightened. There's been a degradation because of the introduction of new doctrines. And I love the fact that that, that argument will be part of this, but maybe at the beginning we should tell people why we spend so much time on Lincoln. It's not just because he's the greatest president, it's because of why he's the greatest president. That's right. Lincoln, Lincoln uh, well, you say he's the greatest president, and I have a certain humility about judging between him and George Washington, but uh, he surely is one of them. And this, this crisis, which you know, gave rise to what is still our most destructive war of American life, was a civil war, and it was about the things that the country was organized to, to do. And it, 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 it is about the standing and the meaning of the Declaration of Independence. And, and it's about the operation and purpose of the Constitution of the United States. And those things had fallen into much wider disrepute in Lincoln's day than they had ever been. They were rejected by famous and important people and by a whole political movement. And Lincoln's calling was to was to make those arguments, put the arguments together. There are two things that go on in Lincoln in thought and in, in, in his speeches. And one of them is he interprets the meaning of America in its declaration, which states principles, and its constitution, which provides structure. And he's poetic and logical and beautiful when he does that. And the second thing is he puts together a history of the country from the beginning until today to explain the changes that are happening and how they are not indicated by the founding. And, and the first is a philosophic achievement, and the second is a historical achievement. And then you have to add, to understand his life, 
the amazing practical achievement that this guy from the boonies, who never went to college, made himself into a prominent lawyer, uh, and never ran anything bigger than a being a part owner of a of a newspaper and a, and a sole proprietor law firm, uh, managed the greatest war in American history from a standing start to ultimate victory. He did have the great advantage of being born close to Ohio. Yeah, and uh, often said fondly that he's glad he never went there. (laughs) (laughs) We know that's not true. (laughs) He was, let's give the, you've just given a summation of all the things that make him the least likely man to be the savior of a country. Born in the boonies, not educated. I believe he said his education was the Bible and Shakespeare. But give a quick overview of his life and career to set up uh, uh, this Lincoln Day on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Well, he was uh, he was born in 1809 to a Kentucky in Kentucky to a family Thomas Lincoln and Nancy Hanks. Uh, when he was young, they moved to Illinois. Uh, he was a farmer. They were farmers, and he worked on the farm. And he was a rail splitter. He was not given, as politicians are today, to stand up and give long speeches about his childhood. He was asked about it one time. Uh, and he said, it's like in Gray's Elegy, the, the, uh, the, the simple annals, of the cold, simple, I think he said, annals of the poor. And uh, he didn't have, uh, he says in one of our readings today, he says he didn't have as much as six months schooling anytime, but he had a big mind, and he was very given to reading, and uh, read by, by the light of the fire in the house into the night. And uh, he picked up some law books, and he started reading them, and then he got a job as an apprentice lawyer, and he began to learn. Along the way, he met his, uh, his wife, uh, Mary Todd, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, married to her until he died. Uh, he had a young love in a lady named Ann Rutledge who died of the fever. And, uh, and the next thing you know, he's a prosperous lawyer. Let's, let's pause there and we'll come back because all great presidents have been lawyers. I just wanted to point that out. That's not really true, but I wanted to say a good word for the law. Don't go anywhere. It's Lincoln Day, the day after Thanksgiving. My guest is Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. We'll be right back. 21 minutes after the hour, America. As you are stuck in traffic headed to the mall on this Thanksgiving, you may be inclined to just drive around the parking lot because I'm spending all day with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Uh, beginning a new tradition on the Hugh Hewitt Show in 2014, which will continue on, of, of dedicating the day after Thanksgiving to Lincoln, who actually began the Thanksgiving celebration out of the White House. He was the first to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation, but also a man for whom every American ought to be thankful because we have a country because of Abraham Lincoln. And uh, when we went to break with Dr. Larry Arn, and all of these uh, conversations, by the way, if you miss all or part of it, they'll be posted at the Hillsdale Dialogue uh page at hughforhillsdale.com and you can get there via hillsdale.edu or hughhewitt.com when we went to break we remarked upon the fact dr Arn, that abraham lincoln was a lawyer now you were prone to saying mean things about lawyers on this program but well i i actually don't want to do that today i just want to praise you <laughs> for your heroism in defending the legal profession in the way that you do and also practicing it and it goes along with your insults to the Steelers fans. <laughs> Two forlorn hopes, and you keep them up. Well, now, but Lincoln's legal education, I think, is important because it is reflected 
in a lot of his logical thinking. He makes arguments of the sort that one would expect from a brilliant lawyer. Yeah, and, and you know, to say something serious about the practice of the law, the law, I had a young woman about to go to law school coming in to seek my advice today, a student here, and I said, why do you want to be a lawyer? And she gave a reason, and I said, what's the law? And so we talked about that for 20 minutes, and the law is the way we govern ourselves, grounded in our ability to talk, and it's the only alternative to force, and it's the only way to achieve equal justice among people, because the law, rightly understood, we don't have as much of it as we used to today, is general rules made up in advance and applying to everyone before you know who's going to be affected. And that is what the rule of law means. And the best lawyers I know, and I know a lot of them, and Hugh, I've uh, actually been in a case where Hugh was practicing, too, actually, where Hugh was practicing law, and he is a knower of that kind of thing, and it's a very valuable kind of law. You know, our friend, uh, our friend Dennis Prager taught me something today over the radio. He said in, uh, in Scripture, there is an admonition to the judge, do not favor the poor. And he spent quite a lot of time on why that was important, and it refers to something you just said, which is before you know who the parties are, you make up the rule. Mm -hmm. That's right. And and see, the rules, another feature of the law that Madison makes a famous statement about is the law needs to be understandable to everyone involved. And that means that the basics of it and 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 the real meaning of it has got to be apparent to citizens who live under it. And he, Madison says famously, if the laws be so voluminous and so changeable, then you're not going to get the rule of law. And and uh, Lincoln was a, uh, you know, there's stories about him practicing law, and there were documents that survived from his practicing practice of law. And he was a learned lawyer, but also he had this massive common sense. And the things that, that uh, are recalled from his legal career are like his best speeches, they are illustrated in a way so the moral or common sense understanding can follow them. How, how did he learn the law? He learned it by practicing it and reading law books. He read Blackstone. He read, you know, the great law books. He read the law. You know, the laws are published in America, and he read them. And then he had a lot of cases, and he just he learned through reading and experience and through working for a couple of senior lawyers who had accumulated a lot of learning and experience. Am I correct? He was a railroad lawyer for a time? He was, and he, Lincoln became, you know, pretty prosperous for a guy who had nothing. He, he represented the railroads on some big cases, and uh, he became a prominent man, you know, out there in Illinois, which was sort of the frontier. And uh, he was, and he, he was well-known. And he was a very attractive man. Uh, you know, I think he's attractive physically, but what I mean was he had a real gift for, for engaging and commanding attention and persuading. Uh, he was elected to the state legislature. He, uh, he did some law growing, uh, getting the capital of Illinois moved to Springfield, he, uh, that was to advantage of some interest in Springfield, and he was connected to them. And, uh, and, then, and then he was elected to one term in Congress, and he didn't like it very much. Um, he was a Whig under the great Henry Clay, the maker of the, of the Missouri Compromise of 1820. 
and always called uh, Henry Clay his beau ideal of a statesman, beautiful idea of a statesman. And uh, and so he got some experience, and and in, in politics, and it's it's you know he he basically was in the state legislature, and then he was a congressman for just one term, and then he ran for the Senate and won the in 1858 and won the popular vote. And then he ran for president and was elected for reasons that will state later. Now, I have to, I have to pause for a second because uh, you and I, you more than I, uh, interact with a lot of aspiring young politicos who wish to be statesmen. And some of them have sparkle and some of them don't. Some of them have great amount of talent. Some of them have middling amount of talent. At the time, did his contemporaries recognize in Lincoln genius and capacity? Uh, as they got to know him. He was, you know, his, his competitors for the Senate were Salmon Chase and William Seward, national figures. And uh, You mean for the nomination, for the presidential yeah, for, nomination? for the nomination, yeah. yeah. And there, there was a, a gaggle of them in that broken election of 1860 where they didn't count Republican votes in many of the southern states. Uh, and so that was a, a more confused scene. But, uh, but they, and they very much underestimated him. And they, uh, he put them in his cabinet. They were astonished at that. And then they got to know him, and they found him, uh, one of them, or both of them, found him extremely formidable. And, uh, and uh, especially Seward adored him and worked very closely with him. So- and he took command. But that, and that was a sort of an experience, because he was this gawky guy, with a you know big tall angular fella very strong, and uh, and he was homespun seeming and he used common sense and uh, homespun humor. You know his images were from pigsties and farms and stuff. You know, and so that wasn't quite the style in national politics, and he didn't really alter his style very much. Except, well, here's one of my favorite stories. Uh, Joe Hooker, uh, who was a very good general and not good enough to go up against Robert E. Lee, gets his army down through the wilderness, and Lee's just getting ready to take him apart, but it's going pretty well. And he dashes off a note to Lee, to Lincoln, and it's delivered in a cabinet meeting, and it says, and it, he signs it from my headquarters in the saddle. And Lincoln reads it out to the cabinet, and he looks up and says, General Hooker has got his headquarters where his hindquarters are supposed to be. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back. Uh, Larry Arn is president of Hillsdale College on this day after Thanksgiving. The topic is Lincoln, his entire life and his work and why he matters. Don't go anywhere except to HughForHillsdale.com or Hillsdale.edu. If you've missed any or all of the Hillsdale dialogues, they're all there. Stay around. 34 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on Lincoln Day, the day after Thanksgiving with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All of the college's many achievements are available to look at and enjoy at Hillsdale.edu. You ought to be enrolled in the free speech digest in Primus, which you can get simply by signing on to Hillsdale.edu and filling it up. They'll send it to you old-fashioned style in the mail. And all of our dialogues dating back to January of 2013 are available at HughForHillsdale.com. Now, the estimable Mr. Mernon, uh, your assistant, has arranged for me uh, a sequence of speeches on which to dwell. And the earliest of them 
is from 1838, Larry Arnn, and he puts it under the heading Education of a Young Statesman. All of the other speeches are 20 years later. So it's interesting to me that young Mr. Mernon thought, we must pay attention to the Lyceum Address. Why? Well, there's two things I want to read at the outset, because they show him as a young man and something that he thought, two things, how he prepared himself and something that he thought that is extremely consequential for his life. And remark the fact about that 20 years, that there isn't any period in the life of Winston Churchill of one year after he was 24 years old where he didn't write or say something important about politics. In fact, there isn't any year where he didn't write or say many important things about politics. Interesting. And Lincoln's career is therefore compact. It, it, it happens in three bursts, uh, two years, two years, and six years, and then he's killed. And uh, that means that there's something to the claim that Lincoln made that if it weren't for Stephen Douglas and the situation that slavery was put into by him and by the pro-slavery movement, that he would have left all of this to Judge Douglas and been very happy to do it. And I think there's something to that. And on the other hand, in this address to a, a, a social slash uh, intellectual slash political group called the Young Men's Lyceum, there is powerful evidence that denies that. Uh, Lincoln, this, this, this address to the Young Men's Lyceum in 1838, the, the point, uh, there's really great things to take from it, but it, it, it's a speech about lawlessness. And it says that we have to obey the law. It's very extravagant about the law is, you know, we were talking about the law a minute ago, and it, yep. it partakes of that line of thought. And so, by the way, think, think about it. Here's a young man, ambitious, getting ahead some, and he's talking about obedience. And what has to be uh, disciplined and made to obey is, is two kinds of passion. And one kind is ordinary, and one kind is very extraordinary. And the, there's interest in both. The greatest interest is in the second. The ordinary passion is mob rule. He talks about a lynching and a burning, uh, one of a white man and one of a Negro. And uh, he even says that maybe they had it coming, but it was lawless the way it was done, and so people's anger and rage and passions and immoderation ran away with them. And if that happens, the body politic will be uh, greatly compromised. Uh, and that's one of them. And, of course, that's an interesting thing for a young, ambitious man to be dwelling on, uh, and, uh, and especially because of the second one. Is it recorded how the audience reacts, Dr. Earn? Well, there's a newspaper report of it, yeah. And he was, he, he, it's, it's an early evidence that he was effective before a crowd. Because he's 31, it's, it's a bit pretentious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there are things that young Churchill wrote that sound a little like that, too. A little more formal than he sounded later. Uh, and, uh, and so, that's right. He's, and, you know, just think what this society is like, because heck, fire. The streets are dirt, yep. you know, and these guys wear their top hats and they walk in this place and there isn't any, well, yeah, what, what month was this in? There isn't any air conditioning and there isn't any heat, you yeah. know, <laughs> and, and, and he strides up here and, 
And uh, this is in January. They needed heat. They probably had wood stoves, you know. And they're all kind of, you know, behaving kind of formally. And they listen to this exalted address. And that's kind of fun when you think about it, you know. And, you know, I work in a college, and stuff like that goes on around here all the time. But it, it, it was not taken for granted, and now it would be remarked upon as unusual if a young man were to stand up and address the question of the law for an extended period of time in a high reedy voice and be yeah. paid attention to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, uh, and he very much had that gift. A second... Um, glimpse when we come back of Lincoln and how his formative statesman years unfolded with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Don't go anywhere except the hillsdale.edu. I'll be right back. 44 minutes after the hour, American Hugh Hewitt on the day after Thanksgiving. It's Lincoln Day on the Hugh Hewitt Show, and so shall it always be as long as there is a Hugh Hewitt Show with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. We have so arranged it that uh, Dr. Arn now marks Thanksgiving and the day after Thanksgiving, as well as New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, so that you get your Arn fix if you just stick with us through the holidays. Uh, Dr. Arn, a conversation with Lincoln on a train I simply wasn't familiar with until Mernon sent it to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a really tremendous thing. I discovered it in the best book of photos of Lincoln, which is put together by a man named Richard Mellon. And it's, uh, it's really great. It's, uh, uh, it, it's advice that I give to young people all the time. I've been doing it for years now, and and I I actually rank them by whether they take it or not. And to, this this by the way is from uh, 1858, and so it's much later. But Lincoln is reflecting on his youth. And let me make one last point about the Lyceum address. Lincoln says that the passion that may run away from the country is the deep one, the big one, the one that's most interesting has to do with the family of the lion and the tribe of the eagle, towering genius like Caesar or Napoleon. And he says that the country may be prey to those because spirits like that at the founding could win their fame by construction, whereas we who come later could only win it by destruction. Although he hints that there might be a greater thing than refounding or, or than, than altering and trending. Remember, we live in the time, by the way, where everybody talks about transformation, right? Uh, Barack Obama won't shut up about it. He, he wants to be a transformational president. And if you read the speech, it'll, it'll cast that point in, in, uh, in relief. Because Lincoln says, yeah, people are going to want to do that. They're going to want to be as great as the founders, and they can only do that by undoing what they did. Right. So so this is on his mind, and that means that this young man's payon to obedience of the law turns out to be, in this speech, a profound uh, uh, humility and also a, for, a, a, a foretaste of what Lincoln will do with his life. Right. So... You know, how do you get, and so this... He's building a curb on his own ambition, by the way. He's, he's, he's saying he will not destroy anything in order to become uh, something new and something greater than the founders. Just like George Washington in refusing to be king. Right. So it's a way to reenact the life of George Washington by living under the same discipline. And uh, it's, very, it's very interesting that this is on this man's mind at this age. Now, how'd he get there? And, and here's a glimpse into him. In, uh, he became president 
in, in these steps. He became a big deal in Illinois. He ran for the Senate against the very nationally famous and great Stephen Douglas. He won the popular vote. The Democratic legislature of Illinois put Douglas in nonetheless, as they had the constitutional authority to do. And so he's not a senator, but it matters that he won that vote. And, and Illinois is on the frontier and a swing state. And so it just so happened the convention that year in, in 1860 uh, was in Illinois, in Chicago. Well, before that, Lincoln did another thing that was very important, and that is he went back east and gave a series of speeches. And the Cooper Union address is the most famous of them, but he gave three or four. And one of them in Connecticut uh, he gave, and the next day he's on a train platform, and a journalist stands beside him and starts asking him about this speech. And a thing arrested him. Lincoln says, uh, it's, it's the basic idea of Abe Lincoln and, and the, the, in the founding of the Republican Party, which I love to boast happened partly here at Hillsdale College, that they would not touch slavery in the states where it exists because the Constitution didn't give them the authority, but they would forbid it from spreading any further into the vast land to the West and therefore, there would be a whole lot of free states come in, and slavery would be placed in the course of ultimate extinction. That's the argument. And that, in my opinion, is one of the greatest uh, conceptions and acts that a political party has ever worked. If only the Republican Party were as good as that today. Huh. Or any party. I don't care which one. So that leaves Lincoln exposed, however. Because from the one side, people can say, well, if you're against it, why don't you get rid of it? And from the other side, people can say, if you're willing to abide it where it is, doesn't that establish the principle that it should go where it will? Right. And so he's attacked from both sides, of course, as one is when he's in a position like that. And in New Haven, Connecticut, Lincoln says, it's like what you do, I'm paraphrasing, if you run across a rattlesnake. It depends on where it is, what you do about it. Because if it's out in the garden, you'll kill it. But what if it's in bed with your children? In killing it, you might harm your children, or it might bite them. Or what if you find it in bed with a neighbor's child? You might just leave it lie in the hope that it will crawl away, and if it shows activity, you attack it. And that image was the center of that speech in New Haven. And this man brought it up, and he says, Lincoln, where'd you learn that? And Lincoln says, uh, first, there's a, it's very worth reading this thing, and we'll put it on your website if you like. But uh, and it's not very long. But Lincoln says, you know, I'm interested in what you say about my speech. Tell me more about it, because Lincoln's looking for feedback. Mm -hmm. And then the man presses him, and he says, where'd you learn that? And he said, well, I was reading law, as the phrase is. I became a lawyer's clerk in Springfield, and I copied tedious documents. In the course of my law reading, I constantly came upon the word demonstrate. And in this article written by this man who had the, had the conversation with him, demonstrated the talisman. And I thought to myself, what do I mean when I demonstrate more than when I reason or prove? How does demonstration differ from any other proof? I consulted Webster, told of certain proof, proof beyond the possibility of doubt. But I could form no idea what sort of proof that was. I thought a great many things were proved beyond a possibility of doubt without recourse to any such extraordinary process of reasoning. And I said to myself, Lincoln, you can never make a lawyer 
if you do not understand what demonstrate means. And I left my situation in Springfield, went home to my father's house, and stayed there till I could give any proposition in the six books of Euclid at sight. Wow. <laughs> wow. So there's, your, there's your charge, young people. When we got <laughs> many a left a Hillsdale College thereafter. No, we'll be right. Hour number two ahead. The propositions of Euclid. Wow. I've never heard that. But don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show.